You're creature of the night, Michael. Just like out of a comic book. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. Maybe you can hum the theme song. Won't hold it against you if you get parts wrong. While the memory's not too strong, there's a piece of you from a time long gone. So while these fuzzy warm feelings remain, question we ask is still the same. Is a treasure or just plain lame? Is this still good? Hello and welcome to another episode of a podcast called Is This Still Good? I'm one of the hosts, uh, Gavin Murray. Uh, we have another host occasionally. Um, I'm also Gavin. What are you going okay. to yep. do about it? And here... Oh, oh shit, we're know, sticking we with that. <laughs> okay. Sleep all day, party all night, because being a young sexy vampire is great. Speaking of young sexy vampires... Uh, we brought guests. Sorry. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, now I'm not quite sure because I'm I have a character persona attached to me now. <laughs> I could be Sam, young sexy vampire. I think that would look better on resumes from here on out. I've been putting that on my resume and um, official like letterhead for quite some time. Uh, it does get you into some interesting rooms, I will say. So, Sam, thank you so much for uh, joining us and. Um, I don't know you yet. Would You're you like to tell to. us a little bit about maybe your childhood and maybe how it's related to Young Sexy Vampires? Maybe a particular Young Sexy Vampire, uh, I guess, franchise, although I don't think we're going to get into that in particular. God damn, it sounds like we're getting right into it. <laughs> I know, when you tell us about your sexy vampire childhood, Sam. What are we doing? So when you bring up franchises, I mean, that's you trying to bring up a whole swamp of material. So we might want to steer clear <laughs> okay. of that. Uh, let, me, let me be a little bit more <laughs> specific then. Uh, we're here to talk about Lost Boys, one of my favorite fucking movies. And uh, I hear that um, part of the reason that you're here is that you also grew up on this movie and maybe liked it too. I don't know. Maybe. Debatable. No, it's... It's, I think, an absolutely iconic, you know, material in terms of you're talking the horror genre, you want to talk mm -hmm. about 80s films, you want to talk about uh, vampires, again, kind of a, a swamp of such, but one that I think holds its own in all of those arenas and becomes something special with that combination. Transcendent, yeah. Exactly, I love that. It's transcendent, <laughs> which again, you don't hear about vampires. So it does something really special. <laughs> so Sage, you of course also just grew up feeding, suckling on the neck that is Schumacher's Lost Boys. Not only had I never seen Lost Boys, although of course I knew about Lost Boys, I knew some quotes and I knew a few people that were in it, uh, I did not know this was a Schumacher film. I did not know Jason Patrick was in this. I did not know this was what Cry Little Sister is from. And uh, let's just say I got pretty pumped within the first 30 seconds of this movie when all of those things were revealed to me. Yeah, there's something truly magical about sweeping over the Pacific Ocean towards uh, Santa Carla? <laughs> Beach Boardwalk. Yeah. Uh, and Sam, you're you're from Santa Carla, correct? I am indeed from Santa Carla, which I think it's great that they tweaked it ever so slightly because, of course, it's filmed in Santa Cruz. 
But a, a fun fact, when they're driving into town and they see the billboard and it says the murder capital of the mm -hmm. U.S., that's a real thing that was Wait. on the back of a Santa Cruz billboard. Oh, shit. It, was, is it, was it ever the murder capital of the U.S. or was that In, that was already on the billboard when the movie was being developed? The late 70s, early 80s, I want to say more prevalently in the 70s, uh, Santa Cruz was a place you did not want to visit. It was extremely crime-ridden. I believe there was one fairly prolific serial killer who was known to, like, stalk the area. At least one, yeah. Tight. At least one minimum. So... Was it the little girl from Us? Right. So Us also knew what they were gunning for. <laughs> I was actually trying to find a quick way to intro this episode as a faux uh, true crime podcast. And I was trying to think of a good title for it. And I, I just didn't click <laughs> as, as you might've noticed as I very slowly introduced this episode, not to derail us further, but that being said, when did this movie enter your life? Do you remember like a time and place? I was pondering that while conducting research and by mm -hmm. saying that, I mean, watching it, you know, in pajama pants in the late hours of the, uh, the nighttime, uh, was when the best research occurs. I think I was 12 and I had just mm -hmm. moved to Santa Cruz. So my parents thought it would be a kick of, oh, look, look, these are all places that you know. I will preface all that by saying I was an extremely nervous child who was not <laughs> prone to watching any sort of horror whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but I think at that point, that was where pivotal for me because I am a huge horror fan. I'll say that. And that was a moment where it switched for me, where I kind of started to lose that nervous edge and say, wait, this is something that can be appreciated. Another yeah. reason why The Lost Boys is so near and dear to me, because it it got uh, something to, to snap in my brain as it were, because people don't see horror fans as really necessarily a healthy indulgence, but it's the one that I... I have. So I'll say my brain snapped, but it brought me to something I I truly am passionate about. I'm a huge fan of horror comedies specifically. I think the mix together is something truly magical. And it certainly can be. It's not always intentional. Like, and that's that's like sometimes there's this fine line. This movie feels pretty intentional, I will say. <laughs> I agree. But there is something truly magical and like it is this release when you can be both scared and laughter and they're both very involuntary reactions where you are very much at the whim of whatever media is putting those into your senses because it almost feels like it surpasses it like passes right through your brain if it's doing its job right either one. All right, now I I I do have to ask uh before we get to any of this, were either of you actually scared at any point in this movie uh, probably not yeah i don't even know if i could really classify this as a horror movie especially if it is intentional the way it is and it, it's not i don't know failing as a scary movie <laughs> speaking from a 12 year old perspective I that's, that's gonna be better i would imagine that there was a moment in my youth where you know, Kiefer Sutherland jumps out with fangs. You're like, no, that mm -hmm, beautiful face, mm -hmm. why? Um, sort of thing. Those contacts are amazing and doing so much heavy lifting <laughs> on all of these vampires. It's delightful. I believe they had a credit unto themselves if you, <laughs> if you watch in the line of names. 
So I think in a, in a certain jump factor way, depending on your comfort levels, because of course horror is so individualized by what mm -hmm. people consider horror and what does cause, like you said, Gavin, that involuntary reaction within them. But for seasoned movie veterans such as ourselves, uh, no, I think it does an incredible job with the effects. It lends the horror nuance to it without being uh, grotesque, as it were, which a lot of horror films want to just delve into being like, this is scary. And us right. as viewers being, no, it's not. <laughs> Do something else. Well, and there is also like, I know Sage, when we were watching, because we watched it together, and you were really impressed that you saw flying vampire. Well, saw is a strong word, I guess. They're always off camera, <laughs> uh, pretty much, mostly. But like the idea of also really, it, you know, the movie opens with a bunch of aerial shots sweeping over the boardwalk, uh, gets into scenes, and then kind of goes back to these aerial shots. And then something kind of changes, and they be, we realize that we're in a point of view shot. And they do have those really fun, just yeah. sweeping. Because it just seems like kind of like a a, a poorly managed helicopter yeah. shot for mm -hmm, like why mm -hmm. is this so shaky? <laughs> because also the, the the helicopter shots that they're using aren't the, the the cleanest operated helicopter shots in the first place. But then like you see the true power too that they do exude, like for for how like fun and flashy these vampires are. Like they'll still rip the fucking hood off a car. <laughs> yeah, which is. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I want to get my, my timelines straight with regards to Lost Boys, Santa Cruz, and Sam. So Lost Boys comes out in 1987. So your childhood in, in Santa Cruz is kind of what range of years? Well, if I moved here, gosh, this is where you make me start to realize how <laughs> old I am in a span of time. It's a part of the podcast. We won't fact check you, you know, Gener general generalities are okay true horror of the horror podcast comes to light. Uh, I was 10 when I moved here, which had to be like 2000. It was exactly 2000. Okay. Uh, so again, in terms of, but what, you know what I really love about the Lost Boys and what I was thinking about was that it is, of course, an 80s film. It mm -hmm. reeks of Very the 80s. Very purely. <laughs> in a really delicious sensory fashion. Mm -hmm. But while watching it, you could watch this film and it still speaks to you on a contemporary level. This doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel like a pocket of time. Everything is still happening right here in front of you. And I think there's a magic to that. Absolutely. D dated, dated is a specific word. I think what you're, what I can agree with you on is that it definitely transports you to a world and that world feels alive. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know how representative the lost boys is of 1987 santa cruz because it's still like you know costume design in, in movies is never quite what it is in real life and i don't really have a good idea of what it looked like in the 80s because the one year i was alive in the 80s i don't remember so everything's filtered through movies and even if i was like the cabin in alaska is not gonna have wacky hairstyles and jackets around it <laughs> no well, I don't know. That's the point. It would have a ton of cocaine around it. It could also be a testament to how Santa Cruz, to a certain degree, hasn't changed a whole lot. Mm -hmm. All right. So 1987 versus 2000, since that's what you can you, you can speak on. Like how how representative is is Lost Boys to Santa Cruz? 
Well, think of how the film is focusing specifically on the youth, and not just youth, but like an underbelly of youth. So that opening sequence where uh, people are strange are, uh, is, is playing in the background and you're just getting a vibe of who they see and what these boys are walking into, that could very well have been filmed last week. <laughs> very easily. I mean, like last year, <laughs> maybe not last week. <laughs> maybe not last week. There'd be a few more masks around. Yeah, maybe next year. <laughs> But the the concept of it is still a bunch of, uh, you know, kids in hoodies and leather jackets, that kind of uh, punk slash bohemian slash hippie. Yeah. There's a lot of things. You recognize it just by walking around town. That is true. I, I'm I'm from San Francisco originally and like lived all around the Bay Area. So I grew up going to the beach boardwalk as a kid, like semi often because um, it was the most affordable and like still kind of fun. You could get like a wrist pass. You mm -hmm. buy it for like, I think like 12 to 18 bucks or something. <laughs> you can go on all the rides all day. No? <laughs> a wrist pass is like a hundred bucks. <laughs> what? At the boardwalk? <laughs> we went a little while ago and my fiance bought us tickets and I think my eyes actually did that Bugs Bunny straight out of my skull when they announced the price to him. I yeah. Said, oh no. man. Because like, I, growing up, part of it was too, like, the boardwalk only has one, no, two roller coasters. It's got the Giant Dipper. And now there's some other stuff going on. Yeah. But the it's actually another great part of The Lost Boys is when you watch the boardwalk shots, a lot of things are recognizable. Of course, it's been updated since then, but they... But you know, they, much. They... <laughs> it's the same as, as last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little more more ritzy because they're offering to a different clientele now. But you can uh, you can visibly see them walk past the the haunted house ride. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, the giant dipper soars through a shot at one point. There's right lots of things that you can pinpoint and say, ah, yes, that is still there. <laughs> and those the stairs look the same leading down to the beach. Like the layout of the of the of the San Cruz Beach Boardwalk is well. I mean, it was also prominently in us recently. And it does not look that different, uh, aside from a giant basement that none of us knew was there beneath the sands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, real quick, before we go too much further, uh, we have not described our quick, like, three-minute plot summization, uh, summary of this um, stage as the okay, newest so member of the I Lost I want to say Lost that after, <laughs> after 20 episodes of this podcast, there's a couple ways that this can go, so we can decide who's going to do this. We can have uh, an overly long but very confident telling from Gavin. <laughs> we could have overly a... Long? Yes. <laughs> we could have, like, a flustered and inadequate telling from me. What do the fans deserve? Well, let's ask them right now. Fans, call in. <laughs> we'll wait. All right, so it's me? You're let's honest. All right, so... Sweeping aerial shot. Santa Cruz Boardwalk, 1987. Joel Schumacher, yes, didn't know that. We will talk about this later. Jason Patrick, yes, didn't know that. We will talk about this later. Keeper Sutherland shows up, knew that, but very excited. Alex Winter shows up, did not know he was in this. We'll talk about this later, probably not that much. Alex Winter's not really in this movie yet because he's not Bill or Ted. Which one is Alex Winter? So I'm the overly long. Uh... <laughs> I start long and then I like vamp up. 
no you haven't intended. gotten through the opening titles yet, bro. Because <laughs> they're the most exciting part. Cry Little Sister loudly said I properly pumped for this movie. All right. So this movie is about Michael and Sam Emerson, uh, who have moved to Santa Carla, the vampire capital of the world. Murder capital. I said what I said. <laughs> And uh, they go live with their kooky grandpa out in the Santa Carla Mountains. No relation. They go to the boardwalk. The mom in search of a job. The younger son in search of some comic books. And the older son in search of some uh, some sweet vampire tang. <laughs> he sees a girl in the crowd of a concert where a very sexy man is playing a very sexy saxophone. We will talk about that later. <laughs> Insert sax here. But the girl is kind of sort of dating Kiefer Sutherland, who is in charge of a group of boys. <laughs> See, I'm bad at this. He's in charge of a group You're of Lost great. Boys. They're the titular Lost Boys, I think. Does anyone say Lost Boys in the movie? They don't need to. <laughs> okay. And he says... Can you can you go to this pass with us on your bike? Because they all have bikes. And he says, my bike can't keep up with your bike. None of that's what happened. <laughs> what this I mean, sort of. You're, it's painful, but... <laughs> I told you, there were two I'll options. Fix it later. And you didn't want to say everything that <laughs> happens. Um, he follows the, uh, the gang of vampire bikers to this uh, sunken fault system that they've turned into a party house and Kiefer Sutherland feeds them some maggot rice, feeds them <laughs> some eel noodles. Yep. And now that he's nice and tricked, just gives them a big old bottle of blood. Jason Patrick wakes up the next day feeling kind of strange as what you do when you drink a lot of blood. <laughs> Regardless of what movie universe you're in, <laughs> those are the consequences of drinking blood. I had a nickel for every time, I swear. Exactly. It's, it's a, a rite of, of passage in Santa Cruz, I assume. <laughs> um, and then checking my notes. Checking my notes. <laughs> Vamping. <laughs> um, and then he starts going through some vampire tropes. Mm -hmm. He's half translucent in the mirror, which is... A lot of the vampire tropes of this movie, by the way, are like... Not what came before, and not what happened after. So it's just, every vampire movie kind of makes up its own vampire rules, and I am very unfamiliar with a lot of the stuff that, that happens in this movie. Uh, so he kind of sort of flies. He mm -hmm. tries to eat his brother in the bathtub, but gets attacked by a dog. And the brother quite quickly figures out that his brother's a vampire. Uh, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. <laughs> And he knows this because there are two other characters we haven't mentioned. The Frog Brothers, who are very aware and on board that vampires may be real, so we should know how to kill them. And they work at a comic book shop that Sam went to earlier in the morning, in the movie. Yep. <laughs> Maybe in the morning. Uh, we will talk about them later. <laughs> okay. Um, Gavin, what happens next? <laughs> Sam, through researching further comic books given to him by the Frog Brothers, understands that the only way to stop his brother from going full vamp is to kill the head vampire. But who is it? Is it David? 
Keith or Sutherland? Is it probably it? No one thinks it's Alex Winter. Let's be real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is it possibly their mom's new boyfriend who has given her a job at the bookstore on the board or the VHS store on the boardwalk? I don't know, Gavin. That would be pretty ridiculous. <laughs> it's pretty out there. So together, Michael Star, the girl that uh, he's been hanging out with, who's a vamp. Uh, that he realizes she's also only partial vampire. So together, they all get together, join the Frog Brothers, and go vampire hunting. Uh, a giant battle ensues at their grandpa's house, who uh, they trick into going out and uh, hitting up the widow that he hangs out with. It's very kooky and adorable. <laughs> the big battle ensues. There's a bunch of vampire killing, some bad puns, death by stereo, uh, as as a vampire is staked through a stereo system. <laughs> After the last vampire's gone, Michael realizes that he's not turning back. And then who should come back but their mom and her new fresh boyfriend, who is, in fact, the head vampire. Uh, luckily, Grandpa's been kind of picking up on these hints and comes back and drives his, his steak bed car full of steaks <laughs> through <laughs> uh, his daughter's uh, bow and... Uh, you know, hey, that's your first week in Santa Carla. Time to get used to it. What's the one thing you don't, you hate about Santa Carla, Gavin? Well, there's one thing I can't really stomach about Santa Carla. All the damn vampires. That is still, but, to this day, a pitch-perfect ending, in my opinion. Oh, God, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that the guy, who, the guy who plays the grandpa is... Like, all the performances in this movie are, like... They're not like in terms of like if they're not like Oscar perfect, although we have Oscar winners in this movie. Um, I'm going to go a step further and say there are very few good performances in this movie, but they're all perfect. They're all perfect for the film. Like the world that they create is perfect. So, I mean, what's your definition of a good performance? Is it selling the world? Is it selling the character? I think that everyone in this movie does that. Most specifically, Tim Capanelli's hips. So one thing that I'm probably going to say multiple times to them this podcast is that there are bad things in this movie that still work for the movie. And I'm not as on board, on board with you with intention, especially like looking over Joel Schumacher's entire filmography. It's very hard to to really figure out what's intentional and not. I think you just are you you need to broaden your scope of like what's working in terms of all that because it all is intentional and it's all fire. <laughs> like I think that's the thing. It's like it it is those performances and the way that they are delivered, which I will also it was interesting to me that it's find out how much like like I know Jason Patrick, is that his name? Yes. This is your boy? He's like, I thought I know him he from was a much movie. more famous actor than he was. I did not know him from this movie. I know him from like three or four other movies. He's like he chooses a role every like three or four years, and he's been in some big famous stuff, but like very few of them. And now he's either not working or doing like direct to DVD stuff. So I don't know what happened to his. Career. I mean this this seems to be his biggest movie Probably, when I look yeah. on IMDb. So when you say <laughs> big stuff, I mean this is a. There was this a is a big where, like, movie, the but it's Alamo a cult movie. Was was a very big movie. Um, I'm gonna have to like look back through because again, he's like in the interviews and stuff. Like they talk about how much free reign he was given and how Joel Schumacher actually like had to ask him like six times to 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 work on this movie. 
He didn't want to be part of it. No. And and he came with a list of demands, basically. And they say he was given, like, script access and notes, like, that they they consulted him on, like, almost everything. This does not surprise me. He basically cast Star. Okay. Uh, after working with that same actress on a different movie. Uh, Jamie Gertz. She is an unsung hero. She's so cute. She's so <laughs> cute in this. <laughs> She's adorable. I think she makes it because they wanted someone more like uh, Wayfish, like Meg Ryan-y type. And then, yeah, Jason Patrick was the one who said, no, no, she's great. But I think when she first enters the screen mm-hmm. and she's flouncing along on her skirt with her glorious curly hair, and it's like, that is perfect. That is, that's the heroine that we're looking for in this particular property. So I think that was an incredible stroke by Jason Patrick, uh, just in terms of his input there. It also feels much more like the vibe of like the Santa Cruz kind of I was going to call them street urchins, which I guess like is even close. Like, you know, Lost Boys, street urchins. It sounds kind of like, I, yeah, we'll stick with street urchins. It totally fits. <laughs> okay. So here's what happened with Jason Patrick. He was the lead in Speed 2 Cruise Control. <gasps> so I, in my head, he's just like, well, he must be like an action star who's in a lot of things. <laughs> wow. And, and you said he wasn't cool. in anything big. That would be weird if that was your biggest movie, right? <laughs> Very choosy with those rule roles. I, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. No, when you look at like the amount of like creative control that Jason Patrick demands and how choosy he is with his roles, regardless of like the outcome of that, you have to wonder like why anyone lets him because he doesn't have like the body of work <laughs> to demand that. But he does have that body. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> Ow! He's not like an Edward Norton type. Or, like, someone else famous for exerting a lot of creative control who can back it up with the works that they produce and the money they've made for people. I'm going to guess Speed 2 Cruise Control did not make a lot of money based on the fact that we don't have eight speed movies. That's a world we could live in. You know, it's interesting. I never thought about it. That movie's called Cruise Control, mm-hmm. which is, like, the least exciting version of driving. <laughs> <laughs> but necessary but, but for Gavin, the franchise. Do you know where Speed 2 takes place? Uh, is it on a boat? It is on a boat. Okay. It's really like I knew one of them was on a boat. I don't know how many of them there are. <laughs> a lack of cruise control. Whoa, that's. I guess that doesn't fit as good as a, a subtitle. No, it does not. Speed two, lack of cruise control. <laughs> Out of cruise control. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's better. <laughs> What were we talking about, Lost Boys? I don't know, but I'm definitely going to put in Cry Little Sister anytime there's a pause in this podcast. Mm-hmm. It fits all all voids in any area of your does. life, really. So. Anytime there's a lull, you get some soundtrack. In terms of cast, though, I mean, Jason Patrick was given, I think, a certain amount of leeway because you know Joel Schumacher's trying to put together this crazy project that no one really believed in. Uh, yeah. especially because he was trying to marry horror and comedy and people said, you don't do that. And he said, I'm going to watch me. <laughs> Literally zero precedent for that. <laughs> it was so hard for me to wrap my head around that. Like, and this was probably one of the first horror comedies I saw that made me fall in love with that genre. But by the time I was watching this, the, this movie, like, you know, Tremors was out. Scream was out. Uh, you know, the Men in Black movies were out. Like all these, like the the the, the idea of blending comedy and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and not just doing a spoof necessarily, but like letting them both kind of live a little bit more pure was out there. Like the faculty, like 
Yeah. It's I so mean, rich. And there's <laughs> Buffy even the Vampire argument. Slayer, I guess, is the clearest. <laughs> yeah. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer owes a lot directly to this movie. Like, that was a big inspiration for the movie, which means, of course, the TV show, which means how we treat vampires today is probably more due to Lost Boys than, like, any other kind of movie that came out in that time or before. A hundred percent. Because I feel like there are the the are the adult uh, vampire movies, by which I mean your Draculas and Nosferatus. You got and, your Draculas, your Nosferatus. And then there are your... Your sexy or like coming of age vampire you got your movies. Your <laughs> and if we can get into like the prehistory of like how this movie was made, this was not what it looks like now at all. Like in conception, this was going to be a Richard Donner movie. All the teenagers were 13, 14, uh, technically teenagers, but like a very different story. Joel they Schumacher. All wore giant red capes, had S's painted on their chests. <laughs> yes, it was this a was a thing. super rad spit off. Uh, and you can, you, you can like look at that and realize that this was going to be a much more Goonie style movie. Absolutely. Joel Schumacher, famous costume designer, <laughs> comes on. He's directed some big movies at this point, uh, most famously St. Elmo's Fire, which had come out a couple years before, but he will always be DC Cab to me. But he's he's got his start as a costume designer. He comes on board this project uh, and says, "What if what if the vampires are a little bit older? What if it's what if it's sexy? <laughs> what if they have a, a lair inside of an earthquake and it looks like this?" And he designs all these sketches and production art and like shows it to daughter. Is like, yeah, this is that movie now. <laughs> well, and there are people who say that uh, to a certain degree, Lost Boys is. Uh, is the reason why we have the young, sexy, bodacious vampire that we're kind of used to seeing today in terms of like, I mean, I choke to bring it up, but Twilight or Mm -hmm. any number of little, you know, daytime television show, Netflix streaming things that we see today. Your vampire's diaries. We now have this concept of what a vampire looks like, which was not what it looked like. Although I will beg to say that the hunger did come out before the Lost Boys. So if you want to oh. argue who created the young and sexy vampire, it was already around. But Lost Boys really like catapulted it into something like people said, that's what we want to see. That's what's going to make money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I would, I would trace it back to the young, sexy Count Orlock, but uh, it's Nosferatu. Oh, okay. Who? <laughs> <Ew. laughs> Even when we tell, like, Dracula tales now, like, uh, BBC's Dracula, you know, starts off with old Dracula, uh, decrepit 90s, and then he drinks some blood, and he turns into, like, not, like, young Dracula, but, like, a very sexy mid-40s Dracula, and that's and he, even how we view Dracula now. Yeah, I thought it was a little on the nose, though, when he, like, leaned back and, like, kicked the jukebox, and it started playing Cry Little Sister. <laughs> Like and stepped outside we get and started it. You've glittering. You've seen Lost Boys. Come on. <laughs> I want every movie to open with Cry Little Sister. <laughs> that's that's what I usually play when I walk into any sort of establishment. Honestly, mm-hmm. it just sets a sets a really good tone for how the rest of the uh, rest of the encounter is going to be. <laughs> that's your self imposed uh, theme song. That you just Travel have around with that. Box. Make sure I can. I actually just walk into places and just belt it out. Um, <laughs> It's led to some very strange interactions with like Starbucks, like the going over like the kind of jazz vibe that they've got going sometimes. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. I'd say more often than not, it does. I'm open to the remix. I'm open to so, it. So 
when I enter a room, I take a, a different approach. I, I burst in shirtless, oiled up, <laughs> muscly with a saxophone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, mixed results. Again, depends on the establishment. Uh, most of the time, people just ask me to put a mask on. <laughs> Are we going to talk about how that is the most single-handedly, for the amount of time that guy has on screen, that guy has an entire career. You can even, like, if you read interviews with him, he spent 15 years touring with Tina Turner. No one yes. gives a shit about that. They don't care. You're the guy from the Lost Boys that was in there for. Li- I think if you counted the seconds, less than a minute, less yeah. than a minute. Oh, and I yet mean, it I would cuts. almost give him a full minute because there that is there's so much cutting to him when it's like you know he, it's that. Go he ahead. does get his own credit. <laughs> of course he like, does. You think about that role, mm-hmm. like that shouldn't be like in the first line of cast credits. That oh, should be yeah. further down. Mm-hmm. It is. It is in like one of the top ten credit. If you go on IMDb, Tony Camp- Campello, Campelli, which Campanelli, Campanelli. All right. No, wait. I had a day to to learn and memorize this. He just came into my life. It feels like a thing <laughs> I al- always should have known. Um, Gavin, you know a little bit about his story that you want to share with us? He passive aggressively asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean. I wouldn't say there's that much more the facade, the like rippling muscles covered in oil is like really what I, I want to focus on. But you know, he he worked for Tina Turner. He he had a bunch of like places he was working in the eighties. And what really was a defining moment for him was he he was a heroin act earlier in his career. And getting out of that, um, the way he brought himself back and bigger and better than ever was through just aggressively working out, putting on leather G strings and being um, led around on a chain by various uh, female pop singers so that he'd like take his place and do saxophone. And uh, what a life. Like it's, it's really truly inspirational. And my God, can that man blow sax? He he he's only released one album, and it's called "Blood on the Reed." Ooh, really? <laughs> Ooh. Blood yeah. on the Reed. Mm-hmm. So he's metal, Kenny G. Love it. That's a vibe. That is a vibe. Right there. <laughs> it is Tim. It is Tim Capello? By the way, I I you were correct. Okay. Oh, I think you said Tony Capello. Which I mean, granted, the man has a. A Tony uh, Capello vibe. <laughs> yeah, he's you know the muscular, the tight pants, and or leather g string, and it's it's really the 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 long ponytail that's like got probably the same body oil he's using over the rest of his body that like just sells a Tony. Um, much love to all Tonys out there. Uh, aside from I already forgot his name, Tim Capello. Tim Capello? Tim Capello. Tim Capello. Um, aside from Tim Capello, what's everyone's favorite performance in this movie? Ew. Tim Capello. Oh, aside, aside from... T- I'm sorry. You have to it's just a knee-jerk reaction. And you can't say Tony Capello either. <laughs> Tim Capello's hips, really. So cheating <laughs> in this podcast. Oh, God. So what, what I've been trying to say is, like, the movie cuts to him so often, and, like, way more than a crowd scene like that really would. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know someone had to, like, make Jules Schobacher edit that, even to that point. I feel like there's a version of Lost Boys where it is, like, an uninterrupted minute and a half of Tim Capella just gyrating <laughs> and saxing all over the audience. He's so saxy. Yeah. Creating lustful situations for teenagers to gaze at each other as, as I'm sure a man and a woman do. <laughs> there's not many parties 
uh, on screen that I'd rather be at than that beachside rock concert. That is exactly pretty much verbatim what we were saying when we watched it was, <laughs> damn, why don't they do that at the boardwalk anymore? I would go to that. I would do that thing right there. And that thing being Capello, of course, but that's, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. It's simply the best. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. It's a good bit. Thank you. It is It is a good bit. Uh, to your To your earlier question, I'd be hard-pressed to choose between kind of the Frog Brothers as a unit, but Corey Feldman with that voice. The Rambo and, voice. And Grandpa, but yeah. So, uh, Corey Feldman, his, uh, his instructions for the movie, Joel Schumacher told him, go rent every Stallone and every Chuck Norris <laughs> movie and just put them together, meld something out of it. Which is That's... a weird thing to tell a child. <laughs> he even has the Rambo outfit. He's got yeah. the he's got the, mm -hmm. the the red headband, the headband, and everything. He's wearing the army gear. Yeah, the... Like he, you can tell the performance is styled after that, and it's very endearing in a in a child who's clearly trying to do a Stallone impression. <laughs> yes, his voice is so deep, and I wasn't sure. Like I knew Corey Feldman and Corey Haim are are famous as a duo and for some other things in the 80s, but I have never actually seen or heard Corey Feldman except for some of the weirder recent stuff. Like, I had seen the Corey Feldman pop star music video side of him that's happened the last couple years before I'd seen Lost Boys. Uh, I've never seen License to Drive or Dream a Little Dream or any other of the seven movies they did together that I really just learned about <laughs> So I thought maybe his voice was just that deep. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm trying to remember, like, God, because he's got some great lines, too, and they're all delivered like that. You know, it's the... <laughs> I think I should warn you all. When a vampire bites it, it's never pretty sight. No two bloodsuckers go out the same way. Some yell. Some scream. Some go quietly. Some implode. Some explode. <laughs> but they all will try and take you with them. The delivery of each one is so sincere, too, and so direct, so dire in the moment. I mean, these kids are hunting vampires, and they take it so yeah. seriously. Although are, his, still, are his like, fingernails longer? <laughs> How's his breath? Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was always bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're going to have to stick your brother. <laughs> that was an interesting debate we were having, uh, Sage, while we were watching the movie, is like, do you think they've killed vampires before? I don't know. It really and that's does. By seem the like end it. of the movie, like I can't tell if this is a movie where like vampires are being introduced to Santa Cruz on a more public scale. Like obviously, like children have been missing, but it's unclear if people know it's because of vampires. It's also unclear if everyone knows. Oh yeah, there's <laughs> vampires here. We just don't talk about it. <laughs> Which I kind of think I like that. The yeah. latter version, honestly, which is implied by Grandpa yeah. at the end yeah. that, oh, they do know. They're just like, they can't do anything about There's it. There's a beautiful ambiguity. Yeah. That's the Sunnydale approach to mm -hmm. uh, being festered with vampires and demons and all things nightly. Yes, absolutely. Like, oh, well, we're just, this is part of the environment, so. Yeah. yeah. Sub it'll take care of it or they won't. <laughs> beautiful coastal views. Gorgeous mountains. Hellmouth. <laughs> I mean, this is the price you have to pay to live in paradise, all right? Well, thankfully, it keeps rent a little lower, too. Like, you know, that's part of it. That's true. You can't, you can't gentrify that neighborhood. 
I'm honestly curious if vampire and let's say, you know, it's 2020, so don't rule anything out. But if vampires were to become a thing in Santa Cruz, I bet you anything, the housing market would stay the exact <laughs> same. I bet you anything. Tech, tech buddies would not be scared. No, 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 no. They're not scared. They're like, no, our beach home and you can't drive us away from here. If anything, and this is this is going to be a terrible statement. If anything, house prices might raise because there'd be less of a homeless population. <laughs> yeah. It's dark. <laughs> it's very dark, but like yeah. incredibly true. If you're if you're a vampire, especially if you're trying to like hide the idea of being a vampire from from the public, like you're going to eat a lot of homeless people. That's been a trope in vampire fiction for a long time. But mm-hmm. only lovers left alive makes a big case for you can't just be drinking anyone's blood. So that's no. something to be aware of. So blood, it's like, you know, you wouldn't eat McDonald's every day because it's going to make you sick. you got to be aware oh, of what you're putting in your body. Vampire diets are not talked about enough, and they're very important. So Let's they, too, require it. nutrition. They really do. Yeah. So. But it's like you guys were saying in terms of uh, vampire films and how each one has its own set of rules. Yeah. And I think Lost Boys is actually the first one to kind of tap into that where they're like, we know the classics and they do pay a certain homage to the classics. I love that they keep incorporating fog and how the boys are disappearing in and out of it. Cause that's, that's deep cut Dracula mm-hmm. where he can tr- transform himself into mist. They mm-hmm. do things like that. Um, but the, uh, they do it more subtle, though, because I remember, like, also growing up with, like, is it Scorsese's Dracula? Coppola's. Coppola. Coppola. Coppola's Dracula. With Keanu they... Reeves' impeccable accent. Oh, I'm not strong that... enough to discuss this movie, guys. I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't mentally prepared for this. <laughs> that movie has some stuff going for it. Like, um, shit, what's his name? Tom Waits. <gasps> giving one of the greatest performances ever put on celluloid. But... Then there is Keanu Reeves in that movie, which is a little, little, little more of a mixed bag. And uh, there are some just like choices, which I know go further back. But like, I feel like part of what happened around like the Lost Boys in the '90s era, they kind of streamlined the vampire mythos in terms of yeah. like maybe we don't need to deal with the fog. Maybe they don't need to turn into like a giant wolf monster. Yeah, thing. that's the biggest thing. It's like <laughs> vampires should not be able to like, turn into wolves. That market is covered. Yeah, like. <laughs> A bat, that's cool. We can, we can like, that, that sometimes can be fun to talk about. You know, we'll, you know, treat it like, I don't know, like a more outlandish spice. Like, you don't put curry, like, I do put curry on almost everything, but you don't have to put curry on almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what's your pre- favorite performance in the movie? See, and I've been trying to prepare myself for that, and I'm still just in this. Ultimately, it's an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm. I, it's hard to pinpoint one and say, you were the best part of this movie because they play off of each other so incredibly well. I mean, things that stand out to me, um, I would say, are Corey Haim and Jason Patrick. I love their dynamic. These are two brothers who love each other and get along rather than the constant, like, bickering that you usually see movies set up for. Diane Weist as, like, the very chill, very nurturing (laughs) mother sort of thing um, without being the overbearing kind of panic ridden one that you typically see keeper sutherland honestly when you watch that film you understand that he actually has the least amount of lines for a principal character but carries that film on his back 
sort of thing, kind of similar to Michael Keaton in Beetlejuice. He's actually very little in the film, but when you think Beetlejuice, you think Michael Keaton. Yeah. So it's like there are performances that you can look at and note, but ultimately, would any of them really work if they didn't have each other? So <laughs> it's about togetherness, guys. It's family. <laughs> Shout out to that casting director. <laughs> well, and it was, I always think casting is such a truly remarkable stage of putting together a film and kind of the, the fateful choices that are made. Things that are, you know, like the grandpa was supposed to be played by one of the Carradine brothers. Um, I want to say John, I could be wrong. That's not the one I was aware of. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Um, oh, yeah, there is. A, I mean, are there more than three? There's David. This there's isn't Carradine talk. <laughs> it, there's like, this was pre-Baldwin's. There were the Carradine's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. But the things that could have been changed, you know, and Jason Patrick insisting that it be Jamie Gertz and... You know, uh, it, Diane Weist agreed right off the bat, even though she had just won an Oscar. And Joel Schumacher's like, really? Do you want to consider this at all? Come do this sub $10 million vampire movie in Santa Cruz? So it's, it's I think, you know, you change any little piece of casting in a film, you really can make or break it in that moment. And this one just happened to be one of those lovely storybook finishes of everyone fits into their space. and. And history is made from there. Who are you thinking of? Who are you thinking of? You're thinking. I am choosing. Here's we, the thing: like there are waffled. things I can I can change that like might improve this movie, but it's not worth the risk. <laughs> I don't think Corey Haim's particularly good in this. That's always there's so many moments where I'm like, Ugh. and then it'll like would be back with another delivery. <laughs> Still like that, but there's so many lines are just like I mean that that could have been either funny or emotive or whatever you were trying to do, and instead you you hamstered it up. Uh, Corey Feldman, no notes. <laughs> Stay cool. Yeah, well, and that, but like that is part of it is like the way that like that scene, which is kind of so cringy and perfect at the same time, where he first meets the Frog Brothers, and they're like. What you see? You see? You like the shirt? You want to know where I got it? And he's like, "No, oh, we're just checking out like city boy coming down to the <laughs> the big old boardwalk. Uh, you here on vacation uh, or like whatever?" And it's like, "You don't know anything about comic books, city feller," which is kind of a strange assumption now that I've said that out loud. Yeah, and he puts them in their place by like, you know, "Look cities at you that have more comic book shops, right? <laughs> Look at you putting Superman three hundred next to Superman forty five. They haven't even discovered red, red kryptonite." <laughs> <laughs> but like that that there's only four copies of this batman comic in possession yeah and i'm constantly looking for the other three why are you looking <laughs> for a comic you already have yeah i don't understand it. that that like that sort of like toxic comic book mm-hmm, culture mm-hmm, that i know yep. existed at one time oh but like i've seen it it's like it's still like around <laughs> but i haven't experienced that in actual comic book shops because most of that just moved online <laughs> and being raised by a comic book nerd there's mm-hmm. a part of me that's just shaking my head. Like, of course he wants the other three. It's about possession. You own the things. <laughs> like, right. That that's toxic, literally all toxic it is. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Your knowledge isn't useful if other people have it. Yeah. I'm <laughs> saying you have to retain the power. <laughs> what good is enjoying something if other people can enjoy it too? Oh, it really just dampens <laughs> the flavor of the whole, the whole meal. It really does. <laughs> can we cover something that 
I'm currently calling Gay Watch. Ooh. But we'll probably <laughs> change later. This is the idea with like a lot of 80s and 90s movies that have um, outwardly gay directors uh, who were hiding it at the time and try. Well, I don't know if Joel Schumacher was ever like closeted. I don't know that uh, that part of the history. But mm-hmm. uh, there's a fun thing with Joel Schumacher movies and Brian Singer movies where it's like, how do we slip things in that a straight audience won't get? Like, X-Men, when you look at it, is a very strong gay allegory. Like, the movie. It, it fits perfectly. And X-Men was really created as, like, as a civil rights. Mm-hmm. So, it works. There's, like, people that are different. It wasn't created in the 60s as a gay allegory, but that works perfectly. And that's one of the reasons that Singer's first couple of X-Men movies, like, are really elevated. Um I'm, I'm not going to say that like, things like Lost Boys of Batman and Robin, like the subtext through the movies elevate things. But like knowing this going into it, I was just trying, trying to, trying to look for anything where I could have like, oh, that's clever moment in Lost Boys. Did you guys pick up on anything or should I cut everything I've just said <laughs> to be, to be safe? I, I, I would say that I'm not sure. Like, I don't feel like it's a subtext thing necessarily. I do think that we do get through Schumacher because I'm also a huge Batman Robin fan. And you do have a lot of like, let's get a close up on these bat nips. Let's get a close up on this bat butt. And it is a different lens than maybe we're used to seeing from like hetero male directors. But like it, it doesn't feel I don't, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it agenda or like hidden. It's just like we have a different lens that we're getting to experience. I should this would be a good time to jump in and say Cludie said in an interview in 2005 that Chewbacca told him Batman is gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is my favorite bit of trivia from anything. <laughs> so for the next 30 minutes we're going to answer the question is Batman gay? <laughs> And pivot. <laughs> and pivot. <laughs> I'll listen to this in the edit and decide if it's worth keeping it all. <laughs> I, I, just, I know I'm playing a dangerous game, but I find it so fascinating. To me, it is like, you know, you could make, you could try and stretch out something about like, you know, again, the Lost Boys, like the X-Men are living outside of normal society. They are trying to initiate Michael, who's very much chosen by David. Not really by star, mm-hmm. like which comes out later, and that's something they discuss. Um, but and like, uh, Patrick, forgotten his name, Jason. That Patrick? that that jaw, you know, can cut glass. <laughs> There's a lot of incredibly sexy dudes in this movie. Oh yes, and and, and you know, uh, Diane Weiss is very cute, and Star is incredible looking. Like, there, you know, but there's not very many women in this film. <laughs> there are two. Well, there's... This the does other... not pass the Bechtel test. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other thing to consider is that, aside from, like, Schumacher and anything else in there, like, there has always been a connection in movies with vampirism and, and homosexuality mm-hmm. in general. Uh, this is a long-standing thing. And, in fact, there's uh, a trend in movies where zombie movies are more popular during... Uh, Democratic administration, no, Republican administrations, 
And vampire movies are more popular during, yeah, your jaws dropping sales during Democratic administrations. And it's really like what people are afraid of when the other side is in power. I Um, want this TED Talk. I'm ready for it. (laughs) So there is, well, I'm doing a very bad job of it, but I'm I'm glad you're interested. So you could look up other people doing a good job of it (laughs) once you click stop. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, and, you know, Republicans and conservatives, uh, there's there's a subtext in vampirism of like uh immorality like mm-hmm. there'll be so sexual immorality as as other people might view it it's fucking fascinating that's interesting i mean one one kind of i don't know if it might be a little problematic maybe but like the idea of one thing that is really recurring in vampiric fiction is choice too Mm. which like we know you know isn't the case with homosexuality but in terms of playing on people's fears and like a lot of homophobia is about the idea of like it is a choice and an immoral choice that someone is making and we need to steer them away from it and so like in lost boys you know he is getting initiated he's choosing to join a biker gang and like they are laying out the positives he's like you'll never grow old michael you'll never die but you have to feed and you know that is also like in in dracula it's about seduction it's not there's in buffy there's a little like that's a little bit less of a thing that they're addressing but like i'm trying to think of like in a lot of vampire fiction it's seduction of the innocent and like making them create this choice to choose damnation for an unlife i guess i i have this theory about horror movies just that kind of the way that fairy tales were set up as cautionary morals for little mm-hmm. ones and how horror stories are are kind of like fairy tales for adults ways of having us acknowledge the the dangers of everyday life um, but you exaggerate them, you, you mm-hmm. stretch them beyond imagination, you create the grotesque um, in a weird way so your mind can absorb it better. Because if you just talked about danger right to your face, it would either fly over your head or get to your core in such a way that you can't really fathom it. Um, whereas if you turn it into this fangs, fur, ah, you're looking at it and you're scared by it. So again, when you guys are talking about the subconscious of, you know, um, uh, yeah, seduction, homosexuality, the things that they are secretly, subliminally tying into horrors. This is bad. Don't do this sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. It all, it all ties, it all ties in. It's, it's again, just these yeah. little, and why Sage, why I'm so intrigued by the idea of genre being more prevalent according to an administrative party. Mm-hmm. Um, truly, what are you scared of in that moment? And what is, what are you feeding into? So I find that just a Downing. And then again, with vampires, it is, it's the idea of sensuality, uh, sexuality, all those things. Because think of when vampires were the most popular. I mean, we're talking about gothic horror, gothic romance. Vampires were super big, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. That's when they kind of hit a peak. I've never okay. thought about it that way before. And when that also ties into a time when people were like all straight laced and, you know, you had to have chaperones. You couldn't be mm-hmm. near anyone. So they're teaching you in that society, like, don't do this. Don't do this. This is where you, this is damnation. This is eternal blaspheme. All of that. It all ties in together. 
But it's also kind of hot, right? Right. That is the other part of it. Is they do ride cool motorcycles. People love to be scintillated, all right? They oh, yeah. Love it. <laughs> so that was Gay Watch. Sam had nothing to do with it. You could send all of your, all your hate mail to me. And uh, if I get rightfully canceled, Gavin, you could look forward to uh, doing this podcast by yourself. Sage's views are not the views of this podcast, and I want to be very clear on that. Oh, to cover all of our bases, Gavin's <laughs> views also do not represent yeah. the views of mm-hmm, this podcast. Mm-hmm. Very true, yes. Uh, podcasts are people, so. <laughs> you gotta do that emergency sound system noise, and then, like, Mr. Movie Phone, like, do the, the warning label beforehand, and then you guys can start your <laughs> podcast. Well, I, I think it's time. I don't think we're going to have too many surprises here, but let's let's find out. Should we Should we decide whether or not this movie is still good? Would you like to explain our, our rating system to our guests? Well, we have a rating system. Oh. There are three tiers with which we may place a movie into. Um, is this movie still good? Is it better as a, a memory? Or is it something we should never speak of again? We should go out back, dig a big old hole, just dump it in there, knock it over the head. Um, you say you rescue know, if it? It's, if it's still alive... It'll suffocate over time. Dump it in a bathtub full of holy water and garlic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, see what happens. It's proven to be effective if you watch the right movies. Oh, my God. We we can come back and discuss the... the Good, because that's honestly my favorite gore effect from (laughs) any movie. It's pretty great. That's some Final Destination shit. Yeah, I, now I regret even bringing up the rating system now because it's all I want to talk about. We'll is just like, go right back to it. We're, we're, <laughs> we're in it. We're in the show. All right. Uh, this movie is still good. It's been one of my favorite movies for a very, very long time. And I do watch it pretty regularly. I've had the joy of seeing it um, in the Castro Theater at like for Midnight for Maniacs. I think I've maybe seen it in theaters more than once. I've owned it on VHS. Uh, DVD, and on this most recent watch, we borrowed my roommate's Blu-ray copy. It's incredible. Uh, it's it is both extremely uh, niche and a capture of like this '80s kind of teen outlaw spirit, but it is timeless in terms of enjoyment. How y'all feel? <laughs> awesome. I think we started this podcast just fangirl giggling over it. Mm-hmm. So I'd be surprised if it wasn't a slam dunk. Across the board, uh, Gavin, you you nailed it on the head that it, it does a great tightrope walk of of kitschy but sincere, you know, and it, yeah, it it manages to let's bring that word back again. It transcends. It trans. I want twinkly noises to go over that. It transcends. You can watch it now, and we can argue over whether whether it's dated or not, <laughs> but it it manages to to stay true. Uh, and it's something that I watched when I was a kid and I loved. I watched it last night and I loved it. And I know I'll show it to my kids and expect them to love it if they want any <laughs> money. So it's like... You're like, you can leave the house when you're 18 or when you tell me that Lost Boys is not a good movie. <laughs> I have luggage just in case you're fine. <laughs> well, I think this movie's fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, this is my last episode. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good movie. Uh, I knew that from Cry Little Sister, Joel Schumacher, Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> I'm honestly, once the glow wears off, I will I will try to decide if this is my favorite 80s movie. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, nothing's jumping out at me more. I will rewatch this movie. 
Um, I can't wait till like theaters and are back so that I can like experience this in a theater or at, I know they, I'll, I'll re-ask you in a bit, but I know Santa Cruz has done outdoor screenings of this all the time. If you've gone to those, chime in in about a minute. Uh, there are, th- so the things about this movie that I don't think are good still work. Like they either work in spite or I don't know. I don't know what's intentional in this movie. This is the third time I've said that. As I don't know, it doesn't bother me. I do think the movie would be better if it like ended three minutes earlier because I think there's enough about like who is the head vampire that is dumb and like the grandpa coming in. Even if he knows vampires exist, he doesn't know he's in a vampire scenario and that's not telegraphed or established. 98% of the movie, I'm 100% have, on board, and then it stage. just lists a kind of... Did I did it cut to the grandpa outside? Did I miss something? No, I mean, he, he's he's doing a lot of, like... No, oh, I that get, dude might be a vampire. I get the setup, but, like, for the actual moment, there's no setup. So it's like, it is a deus ex machina, which is... I never really works for me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just... That's a film language thing. That's the one thing I don't like about the movie that I think is to its detriment. The other things, the performances that are sometimes iffy, uh, some of the, some of the, some of the film language, like, fuck it. It's all great at the end of the day. (laughs) Okay. That was, that was the end. That was the end of your statement. (laughs) Emphatic, still good. No notes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I haven't gotten to see it outdoors in, at the beach boardwalk yet. Uh, have you been to a screening yet, Sam? I don't recommend any. I mean, I only went once. I'm going to tell you now, but that that one. And it was to go see Tremors. So totally different mm-hmm. movie. Oh, my God. I love Tremors so Oh, much. my God. So great. <laughs> but Kevin Bacon, any day. Not even a contest. Uh, but the one experience I had going to a, you know, movies on the beach mm-hmm. event uh, was just so piss poor that I will never do it again. Those those like neighborhood outdoor screenings are always a little weird. They're very family oriented in certain ways, but then like there's like a clear split on who wants to be there, and it just kind of feels like it doesn't always serve somebody the way that like a theater with a paying audience where they know to um, shut up. Yeah. Okay. Does that be the difference between it just seems like such a good idea to have those screenings mm-hmm. of Lost Boys in Santa Cruz the way that like I don't know, Sam, if you've ever been to like a midnight screaming of the room in San Francisco. Oh that shit's nuts and it's always great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just have to be ready for a different kind of screening and yeah. recognize it as it's not so much a movie screening as like a strange party where a lot of people have kind of different aims with what they're <laughs> going for. And you've got to be ready for a mixed bag of a time, I feel like, whenever I've gone to one of those. You also, I also assume that Corey Feldman shows up to every screening <laughs> of The Lost Boys. <laughs> got to get those royalties, man. <laughs> Probably perform. Um, real quick, before I forget, because we're, we're gonna, we've, we've had the semi-recurring part of this podcast, and you just mentioned Kevin Bacon's name. <laughs> Do you want to play our very popular and recurring segments, uh, Six Degrees of Space Jam? I want to play Six Degrees of Space Jam. All right, I think I can get there in four. What? Wait, I'm so thrilled by this. What's happening? So, I mean, I I did some research earlier, and I can get there in one if we uh, go with. I mean, they're they're loose rules. My four (laughs) is is very loose. It barely involves actors. 
I'm fascinated. What is happening? If you're if you're claiming four, I'll let you go first. I already told you I'm mine, so you can't up use a number. Mine. I can figure it out really fast. Oh, okay. All right. So I mean, Lost Boys, incredible inspiration, and I think has a producer in common of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Uh, he gets he gets turned into the TV show, which has the spinoff Angel, which was our follow up podcast to Space Jam. <laughs> oh, wow! That was good. I was gonna fact check the uh, producer sharing. But I won't. <laughs> you could also go, Jason Patrick shares a first name with Jason Statham, oh, who shit. is in Guy Ritchie's Snatch, who was married to Madonna, who dated God Dennis damn. Rodman. Where you get to Michael, I guess Dennis Rodman isn't in Space Jam. No, so, like, but but we got there. He's, he's around inspiration. Space Jam. He's inspiration. We got there. Yeah. Right. Um, what about you? So this movie was shot by Michael Chapman after a, 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 a storied cinematographer and camera operator who had just taken a break to direct a few movies. And this was his return to cinematography. Uh, after he cam-opt on like Jaws and Godfather coming up and did the cinematography for Raging Bull for Scorsese and Ghostbusters 2. And then um, upon trying out directing, having some like mixed success, uh, he's like, I want to go shoot a low-budget vampire movie. With Joel Schumacher. Which brings us to Lost Boys. And one movie I didn't mention that he also lensed was none other than Space Jam. We're there in one. (laughs) That is a tight one degree of Space Jam. (laughs) Also, the production designer, Bo Welch, uh, did Beetlejuice, which was mentioned earlier. And Batman Returns. uh, And also Wild Wild West. And the Men in Black series. But Wild Wild West is... (laughs) <laughs> almost more important to Men in Black to me, which I is weird. Always forget about that movie, <laughs> and that movie is just so very important for all the wrong reasons. It's yeah. just, ugh. it's a damn good time. It's really good. <laughs> I want um, this is very aside. So the one arguably good thing about Disney's Aladdin, the remake, mm-hmm. is that it's the first song in like twenty years where Will Smith raps the credits. Oh, which we all needed <laughs> to come back. You know, it's the worst of those theme songs because it still starts with DJ Khaled screaming his name. <laughs> oh, man. I don't want that. I don't know what the last one he did that is, but, like, I want that to happen more. <laughs> I want Keanu Reeves to come out and rap the John Wick credits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want that to happen in, like, not every movie, but, like, one in three. I don't think that's unreasonable. But most of most of those actors are just not Will Smith, and that is a big part of it. Because, yeah, I remember Will Smith, uh, Wild Wild West being a big part of middle school dances. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Oh, so critical. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. There, there's a hand being raised. Please. What's up, Sam? Do I get to try this game? Hmm? Yeah. No, yes. This is, yes. This oh, you're, 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 requ- you're required to, actually. Well, okay. Again, I, I gather the, the rules are very loose. So, Sage, you start out with like, oh, Lost Boys inspired Buffy. <laughs> yeah, I, he said shared a producer to be fair yeah, yeah oh they share a producer damn which we have not confirmed <laughs> he didn't name a producer <laughs> i yeah no that was I, I didn't think to get called on it but like i'm like 60 certain there's a producer in common mine mm-hmm. might be too loose then this is something like I'm go for just, it no no it's perfect oh uh, i'm just saying like in terms if you're talking about like inspiration then like obviously like 
you know, we brought up Coppola earlier, like mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Bram Stoker. So if you want to talk about vampires, you bring up Bram Stoker, Coppola, Coppola, who had a daughter, Sophia, also a director in her own right, who created Lost in Translation, starring Bill Murray. Bill Murray <gasps> who also had a glorious part in Space Jam. Oh, shit. I felt it in my heart. That was yes. my only goal. I just thought, <laughs> Bill Murray, find a way. Find a way. <laughs> he needs to be That's in here good. somehow. Oh, guys, 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 guys. Okay, if we were to recast The Lost Boys, because I was thinking last night. Oh, if this were if this could be made today, and I think it could be made very well if you stayed true to the original property, Bill Murray is grandpa. Well, that takes us into reboot time. <gasps> yes. So <laughs> we're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the eighties. Oh, it's not a remake, it's a reboot. You see the guys in charge of this stuff lack creativity. What the fuck is a reboot? So all they do now is recycle shit from the past. We're working on less of a shriekle and, and more of a screaming. Expect us all not to notice. I like it. Another Sam, what's your what's are you you're you pitching a more like staying close staying close to the source material? Like are you keeping it in the eighties? What's going on? I think it does so well in the eighties to bring it up now, I think would almost like cheapen it, you know? Like I'm not into that. Um and plus the eighties right now is such a fad and like it's I very mean, hot. You're talking about Stranger Things, you talk mm-hmm. about um haunting of Bly Manor or whatever, like Everybody's all up on the 80s. They love it. It sells. Stay where the money is. Um, I love Bill Murray as grandpa. Shoot. I got to think actively about the other ones. <laughs> I don't know anybody. Like, I'm I'm awful in that I'm not super privy to, like, the hot topics of the current generation. So, like, what are these um, hot young actors that you put in these hot young roles? The guy who plays Peter Parker uh, in the current Marvel Universe could be fun <gasps> as Sam. Oh, he'd be a great Sam. Oh, I love it. And honestly, speaking of Blind Manor, I'm mildly obsessed with Victoria Pedretti, who's also in You. I think she'd make a great star. Personally. All right. <laughs> there was there are actual sequels there I oh, have God. not seen and kind of refused to. Don't. <laughs> have you seen them? We watched the trailers last night, and that's oh, all okay. I need to know. Even oh, just watching the trailer far. was upsetting. 20 years later, seemed like Corey Feldman passion project, and he's the old, I think Corey had cameos in the first one, mm-hmm. but like, I don't think they're Lost Boy movies, I think they're Corey Frog Feldman living in like that town in they the make for Alzheimer's patients. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I know um, Schumacher didn't want to come back to direct, he was trying to get a just kind of gender swapped redo Lost going. Girls. He yeah. wanted to do Lost Girls. He's like, let's do a bitchin', like, all-girl biker gang of vampires. Yep. Who doesn't want to see that? And <laughs> Which, I, I still true. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland was going to come back for that, because if you if you notice, Kiefer Sutherland gets stabbed with antlers, which are not made of wood, and he does not have a grand finish. I don't think Kiefer Sutherland's character dies in the movie. Mm-hmm. Sage, that is a very good observation, because honestly, any and all talks of a, of a sequel were meant to center around David, Keeper Sutherland's character. It was always meant to follow David. He was always meant to be another principal character in whatever happened next. So that's a very good observation. <laughs> Sage, do you have a, a pitch for a, a reboot, remake, sequel? Was your pitch just, just lost? I, I, I've got to reflect on mine, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So under, under Santa Carla, there is an endless series of tunnels and in these tunnels are doppelgangers no uh, 
No, I, I think, I think my answer to most of these movies that are good and wouldn't be proved by by a reboot is to do something truly wacky with it. Mm-hmm. So my Lost Boys thing is not set in 2020. It's set in in the future, specifically the future <laughs> seed in Back to the Future Part Two. <laughs> Okay. Not specifically that, but I do want a Lost Boys where they are on hoverboards, oh. where the fashion is reinvented to something that is like an eighties mid twenty twenties hybrids, I, yeah, uh, and just set in this alternate reality that like a director who used to be a costume designer could really play around with. And I don't have like plotter casting things with that. It's just the direction I would want to see further Lost Boys adventures. And bring back Kiefer Sutherland. Sometimes plot and direction are the least necessary things in films, depending Mm -hmm. on which ones you watch. So sometimes it seems to go out the window. You could just start there and have something really magnificent. And it's a mumblecore movie. (laughs) I'm into it. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. You got to do something different enough to get me to see it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you in like this is such a hard movie to remake because you'd just be trying to recapture lightning in a bottle. Like, there's just so many things firing uh, to make this movie work, and so I too would like want to do like a big change just to give it a chance to stand on its own two feet and like not be in the shadow of greatness. So I mean, I'm trying to think of like I would probably try and do something similar modern like we have a friend who did try and adapt uh peter pan uh into you know san francisco uh using biker gangs actually and which uh, now i have so much more context for what he was doing (laughs) (laughs) so i mean uh, doing something like putting it in a different scene to me like would be fun like maybe exploring 60s like drag race culture you know doing like mixing with uh you know american graffiti and making that movie better or you know putting it in the 70s in like someone you know ha- moves next to cbgb's and they're there and like you know you got the the talking heads and um you know the ramones and then you've also got you know sexy vampire rock and roll band which you know, I'm also trying not to like I I was writing a feature that was about a rock and roll band that the band manager discovers their lead singer has been bitten by a werewolf. Solid. <laughs> and has to like kind of figure out like mm, maybe this is an opportunity. And it's that is that that same playing with like that temptation mm-hmm. and like working in that same comedy horror and and dealing with morality in like a very kind of fun and broad way. So I would, I would like, I would definitely watch the '70s New York punk version of this. Would be really fun to me. And it, again, it's like you're you're dealing with high fashion or low fashion, depending on what you want to call that. I don't know, but that would be fun to me. Putting it in a just a different scene, because a big part of this movie is that Santa Cruz beach like punk '80s scene. Well, in which case, if you wanted to update it, just make it skate culture. Skate culture? Yeah. You could set mm-hmm. it just a couple years later and make them all skaters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just a Kurt Cobain the Venice, out, get the some Venice. plaids. <laughs> Such a good pitch. You do the sequel, you set it in like 1993. Well, um, that, and that is when my werewolf movie takes place, so don't do that, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
you know, well, you don't getting want to take too any close. Gonna... From Gavin's very real and actively being produced werewolf movie. Werewolves are. A... It's called Fur Fangs and Rock and Roll, y'all. Get ready. We'll link to it in the show notes. Sex, <laughs> drugs, and like dance. Same day. Everybody get ready. Werewolves are such an unloved property. I want to see like a decent werewolf movie in my life. There's been a few, but they are they are, they tough are to come few by. and far and I'm definitely more what I'm writing and more inspired by. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China nice. and Lost Boys are what the two I'm definitely pulling from. <laughs> is a werewolf movie that you would recommend if you like the Lost Boys? Um, and also, what are other things you would recommend if you like the Lost yeah. Boys? Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the two two of my favorite like werewolf movies, which again like they're they're hard to get like good all the way through, but The Howling oh. and um dog soldiers are both pretty fun they can you can definitely feel their limitations in certain respects but like one of the things that they do really right is their transformation scenes are some of the most interesting put on film in my opinion okay that being said i'm gonna since i and since i've already taken up time recommending something i just want to holler back to tremors and kevin bacon as like one of another just the best of horror comedies that's ever happened. Okay. What, what, uh, Sam, is there anything you'd recommend? I mean, Tremors, absolutely, if you still want to stay along that. It's like Tremors 2. <laughs> Aftershocks. I forget how many Tremors. Do you know how many Tremor movies there are? There are at least... I have a, I have a four-pack. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> there's more. There, there's, there's that show. There's two television series... And I think there's five movies. There's an alarming amount. Yeah. <laughs> so my friends and I in high school collaborated on a sort of parody script that was called Trevor's 4 Back to Perfection 2 The Return. Mm-hmm. That became outdated pretty fast. <laughs> and then I think they kept making Trevor's movies. It's a great title. There are elements of the script that are good jokes, but it's garbage because it was written by a bunch of 17-year-olds. And I had, I don't know. I hadn't even only seen each Trevor's movie once. It's also tough they to, go to parody space. a f- parody parodying horror comedies is always an interesting vibe like that was we we, i don't know if we'll maybe we'll cover the the scary movie series at one point which you know like i i enjoyed the first couple but it is weird that like they you know started out making fun of scream which was originally titled scary movie (laughs) and which is like in its own way it's a horror comedy like it's a very very fun smart satire that's also still very earnest and pure about being a horror movie too i think most west craven horror movies are horror comedies i think most good horror movie well there's some good pure horror movies but like i think a lot of good horror movies have elements of comedy <laughs> so i'm gonna recommend the the only vampire movie that i think i like more than this one Ooh. um that clearly owes a lot to lost boys and that is from dust till dawn oh yeah my it's a heart good time. it stopped oh so good <laughs> it's it's very good, uh, especially if you want to talk, like, creature effects and prosthetics. Those vampires don't look anything like what they do today. They kind of do look like they do in Lost Boys. It was that period where I don't think we've refined what vampires should look like on screen, but we certainly, like, have a type. <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for I can't find the better words. <laughs> um, and the first hour of that movie is actually, like, my favorite Quentin Tarantino script. <laughs> And I'm not saying anything bad about the last half hour, clearly, but it's a it's a very different movie, which works so well, especially if you ever get the chance to show someone from Dust Till Dawn who does not know what it's about. 
it'd be like watching Pulp Fiction and suddenly Uma Thurman turns into a werewolf. Or you have to hide the DVD cover from them. And you like, really oh, do. Oh, you have to go right through the DVD menu. <laughs> Make sure you don't have it. Yeah, you can't show the DVD menu. You got to blindfold them. And <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I actually do have like a little photo series of people that I've showed from Dusk Till Dawn to. And when the switch <laughs> happens, I take a picture of them and it's really good. It's really, it's like, I'm going to turn into a tabletop book someday. It's nice. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you, I mean, do you have that online? <laughs> just send I, it to me if not. I will make that available. It's yeah, just yeah. a really beautiful. You, if moment. you make it available, we'll, show we'll link to it. <laughs> if we're just talking horror comedy and what should be watched, I mean, Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, Delightful. Absolutely, that's that's important. But I, I do have to say, in terms of most horror, which is as a horror fan, what pains me the most that most horror is seen as comedy, and the genre itself gets bastardized by people who want to make it. Well, but are okay. doing well, it okay i feel attacked but <laughs> <laughs> by gavin <laughs> but it's it's hard to find something where it truly hits the heart um a lot of things could be watched that are horror movies and be seen as comedy i will always say you know when the first question i usually ask people when we start talking about movies is what is your favorite horror movie because i'm fascinated mm-hmm. by who thinks what of horror what do they quantify as horror um i will say like purely on a generational scale because certain answers do pop up among generations um there is a generation that will always list a movie called don't look now with donald sutherland Kiefer's dad and Hmm. julie christie and i'm sorry but that movie is fucking hilarious so don't tell me that's a horror movie but they will swear that's the scariest movie they've ever seen and then i invite you all to watch it um don't send me you don't have my address so you can't send me the hate mail i'm actually this is a victimless crime according <laughs> we'll to put her address in the show notes. <laughs> yeah where can people uh re- reach you re- like find you follow you uh send you hate mail <laughs> i'm gonna let y'all fall on that sword that's how that's gonna work that's that's i'll cut my recommendations because i could talk about horror movies for 17 hours so stop well, me you can come back and we'll do an even more pure we'll do a more pure <gasps> horror movie that'd be great oh, that would be quaking in my boots all right you can find me at Gavin V. Murray on various things. Uh, most of them won't be that interesting, but Instagram's kind of pretty looking. Try <laughs> for that. Uh, you can follow the podcast at Still Good Pod uh, on the, the same app. You can follow Sage. Um, Not going to let me do my own plus. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I, you can I'm going to at- give out old middle school emails of yours. <laughs> Uh, well, if you want to see like pictures of my new kitten, there's some at, at Hold for Plane. Not really doing much else right now. That's that's all my plugs. All right. Steal your <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Sam, and thank you so much for listening. Have a good time. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>
One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. <laughs>